welcome to episode 238 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, our roundup is brought to you uh, courtesy of three uh, great scholars uh, and uh, aficionados of uh, all things cyber. Uh, Matthew Hyman, visiting scholar at the National Security Institute, uh, formerly with the NSD. Uh, at the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be back. Yes, it's great to have you. Uh, David Chris, who uh, ran the uh, National Security Division at the Department of Justice. David, good to have you here. Thank you. And uh, Nick Weaver, the irrepressible Nick Weaver, uh, <laughs> uh, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a lecturer at the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Nick, great to have you here. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and hosting today's program. Uh, so we saved this story uh, for you, Nick. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last week, but I thought it would be valuable to have somebody who could uh, talk about the techniques involved. Uh, the suggestion, uh, not more than a suggestion, the indication from a uh, good paper written by a researcher at West Point and a researcher from uh, Israel on uh, China Telecom having hijacked a whole bunch of traffic uh, to send it through Beijing, where presumably it was inspected. Uh, um, Nick, how do you do that and how serious is this uh, story? Uh, you do that fairly easily because the basic system for internet routing is set up with this trusted model where basically everybody trusts everybody else and you can play very interesting games. The problem is, is we don't know whether these incidents are real attacks or just screw ups. Um, there's a saying I like to use on internet measurement. The internet is weirder than you think, even when you include the effects of the internet is weirder than you think. <laughs> and it's, often hard to tell the difference between a deliberate attack and a screw-up. And some of these could just be screw-ups. Some of them could be deliberate attacks. And we don't have enough information to know. So the problem I have with this paper is there wasn't enough details to independently confirm because there are multiple groups that are collecting routing information all the time. And there are certain strategies that indicate an attack rather than just a screw-up. And so if we add more details, like IP addresses, times, we could look in these other data sources and do active confirmation of whether this was indistinguishable from a screw-up or actually significantly indicative of an attack. But in any case, I find the notion that China Telecom has a dozen points of presence in the U.S. and is a trusted BGP speaker, personally rather um, disturbing. Questionable, that, yeah. Uh, uh, and and the, uh, the number of American uh, ISPs with points of presence in uh, inside China is somewhere between zero and one, right? Yes, but on the other hand, from China's point of view, and from the NSA's point of view, it doesn't matter because a huge fraction of the Chinese Internet, once it leaves China, either goes through Japan, where we've got XKeyScore installs, New Zealand, where we have XKeyScore installs, Australia, where we have XKeyScore installs, 
uh, Hawaii, where, yeah, you get the idea. So it, 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 one, one possibility is that uh, these BGP hijackings are an attempt to reproduce on the cheap some of the infrastructure advantages that uh, the National Security Agency has by virtue of uh, U.S. global uh, alliances. It could very well be. And at the same time, it could be something more targeted or it could be just honest screw ups. So Do honest screw ups last six months. Yes. Honest screw ups will last six months if they don't have collateral effects. So if, for example, the honest screw up had the traffic going through China, but wasn't getting hit by the Great firewall in a way that people noticed, it's an honest screw up. And how would you suggest investigating this? Should we be investigating this? Yes, we should. What we need is we need more details on times of the events in question. And then it's a matter of looking in a couple of major data sources. You've got the BGP observatories that are looking at all of this from many viewpoints. And there are certain aspects that would suggest a strong attack versus an accident. There's also people who every day map the internet from 100 plus locations. And so they have their data going back a decade. So with more details on the events, we can actually start to look and see if these look to be real screw ups or if they look to be real attacks. David, does this suggest uh, a role for the National Security Division, either in its team telecom capability or just as a counterintelligence uh, uh, agency? Uh, uh, I assume if you wanted some of these records, you could go to team telecom and say, I'd like to uh, see your records. And if you need a subpoena, here you go. Yeah, that's right. I mean, first of all, all the lawyers are going to have to get over the shock that they feel when they find out that the uh, the Internet, this grand series of tubes that they've heard about, is actually a whole bunch of little tubes, uh, tube networks strung together. Uh, Nick Weaver knew that from birth, but uh, some of the lawyers and policymakers will be freaking out that uh, the dialing, routing, addressing and signaling information that is part of the metadata that they can get with uh, lesser forms of, uh, of compulsion uh, includes how you do the handoff between these various autonomous systems that together make up the big internet. And there's definitely room for investigation here. It is fascinating that uh, China may be hijacking the seams between those little networks um, and effectively you know, bringing their points of presence onto the North American continent and really reversing the home field advantage that the uh, U.S. thought it had for years. And I would imagine there's some investigative work that could be done there to help confirm uh, some of what this report is talking about and some of what Nick is talking about as well. Okay. I, with Without any uh, ability to do a segue whatsoever, I want to talk about the uh, uh, Supreme Court argument uh, I, uh, over Cypre, I'm going to learn to say that I'm going to be relentlessly a man of the people instead of uh, using the phony, snobbish Cypre uh, 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 pronunciation. Uh, but uh, Cypre came in for kind of a beating in mm -hmm. the uh, oral argument, but it isn't clear to me that, uh, that we're going to get a decision from the Supreme Court on this. No, it's not clear. Um, but I, I will say it's as uh, someone that's been on the defensive side of many class action lawsuits, both in private practice and as in-house counsel, 
It's delightful to see the Cypre or Cipre doctrine even get aired and criticized by the Supreme Court because so, so the doctrine is basically, um, and it comes up in a lot of yeah. privacy cases where everybody suffers a buck and a half worth of damage, but there's right. a lot of people, so you can put together a class and uh, bring a, 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 a an action, and then when you settle it. You're not going to send a buck and a half to everybody. So the idea is, why not give it to some charitable institution? Exactly. And this comes up in the context of privacy class actions, but also any class action. So you get to a diminished amount in that settlement fund, whether it begins in a very small amount that leads to everyone getting four cents or everyone gets a big payoff. But then when you pay everyone, you get to some base amount where it becomes no longer economically sensible to keep trying to distribute it. And so what happens is class action plaintiffs' counsel say, oh, let's donate this to some worthy charity, which they always have some association with. That's why they're so often the man or woman of the year, you know, a year later by that charity is because they got the remaining $3 million in that pool. And it is important to them that there be some payout yes. because if there isn't a big payout, in the direction of the uh, plaintiffs, then it's hard for them to justify big fees. Exactly. So this also acts as, a, as sort of a cover for you know them to be able to say, well, we know you as an individual sufferer of this Google wrong didn't get a payout, but we gave it to this worthy charity that we can all support, whether it's the, you know, whatever it may be, a conservation group, a group that's uh, in favor of greater privacy. And it's just, it's kind of a dirty little business that everyone has always put up with. But uh, it's great to see at least some criticism from uh, the justices of this. So the justices basically, at least some of them were saying, I, you know, how, what's the connection between the people who suffered the harm and these worthy institutions, some of which they may completely disagree with, like AARP. Right. You know, AARP, stop sending me that crap. Right. I, and uh, so that was the criticism that maybe this whole Cypre thing is, is uh, uh, too loosey-goosey. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the, the justices started saying, but, you know, this underlying case, I'm not even sure these plaintiffs had standing. How can we approve a settlement when, when our recent doctrines about standing suggest that there's a problem? So there's a real possibility this will get sent back uh, to undo the case and essentially force a decision on standing, uh, even though I'm sure Google is happy to settle it for this. Yeah. I, well, I think, you know, based on the reading of, uh, of the case, I think both parties don't want it settled. The last thing they want is detailed instructions to go back to the Ninth Circuit to start, you know, redigging the trench. Yep. Okay. Let's let's talk about something that's just really, you know, just painful to uh, to discuss. It's a, a recent story in the Yahoo News that suggests that the um, Iranians and the Chinese figured out what um, internet communication systems the United States Central Intelligence Agency was using to talk to a lot of its assets uh, in the field and rolled them all up. And in the Chinese case, at least, and I'm sure the Iranian as well, uh, uh, summarily executed them. I, uh, David, I'm going to ask you if you're willing to talk about this. Uh, I, I, some of this happened while you were at NSD, so I won't ask you for anything classified. But uh, um, uh, how plausible is a story like this? I only know and would only talk about what I've read in the article. Um, and I, I guess I am afraid that it might very well be plausible um, for... The CIA doing COPCOM, just like for the rest of us, 
the internet is really, really convenient and not always totally secure. Um, you know, also, frankly, the story about how the, the so-called whistleblower was treated, um, you know, will, will ring true, at least to some observers. Um, so I, I have no idea whether this is actually true or not, but it, uh, it, it had the ring of some truth about it. And I think it does point to some larger challenges around COCOMs and the way digital network uh, technology has been very, very convenient and wonderful in a lot of ways. Not so great for privacy, not so great for security either. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm a little more jaundiced in my view of uh, uh, whistleblowers. The story here is there was a whistleblower who said this is a real problem and you need to fix it. And instead of uh, listening to him, he was uh, moved out uh, uh, and ultimately uh, taken off the contract. Uh, you know, I find that when people get to litigation over their whistleblower claims, what they want is to make the claim embarrassing enough for the U.S. government to settle and finding a way to hitch their story to something else that is more newsworthy often is a, uh, a method for doing that. So uh, you have to take the claim that this guy was the hero of the story with some salt. But uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, We've, everybody has seen both sides of that one. Yes, sure. exactly. Um, so, Nick, uh, um, did you look at, at how the Iranians apparently figured this out? They got one guy, they caught one guy, they figured out how he was doing it, and then they went looking for other websites on the Internet that, were, uh, that had the same characteristics? What seems to be described is basically a web dead drop system. So every asset would have their own special site. And the Iranians found one of these, um, apparently through a dangle or something else. Uh, and then they just basically said, let us find all computers on the internet with that property. And the Yahoo story has it being through a Google search, but that's kind of irrelevant that as long as there's a unique feature to a server, um, we can find all such servers on the internet, and we regularly do this as part of our security work. And I'd imagine the Iranians do the same thing. And once you have an identified point of communication, then it's very easy to wrap up the, the network. And so this is the same problem that reporters face, that to first approximation, the CIA is a newsroom with a $15 billion budget, and they have the same problem. How do you communicate with sources in the face of an adversary that can see everything? And once they get a lead, can then pull a thread and follow communication patterns. It's a really hard problem these days. Yeah, uh, it, it, it sounds like it, and especially given the tendency toward inertia, right? It's working. There's no problem. Why should I not continue to use it? Why shouldn't I tell my buddy about it? And he can use some variation of it, uh, but it proved fatal for uh, U.S. intelligence and a bunch of sources. Uh, and also the problem is, is you have to provide a way for the sources to communicate that non-skilled people can use, and you can't just hand them devices that really the if I want to communicate securely with somebody and I can do it, I'll hand them an iPhone. 
that's already pre-configured and locked down. But unless you can do something like that, it's really hard because I have to give them some information to communicate with me in some way that's still covert. And that's hard. Yeah, although if you if you have some idea that it might happen, you might find a way to get uh, uh, all of the mullahs in Iran to also communicate with websites that look a lot like the uh, the ones you use to communicate with your sources. And then they won't know who to kill. Uh, or if they do, uh, maybe they'll uh, get some of the bad guys as well as uh, uh, CIA sources. All right. Um, you know, we've, we've had a terrible week or two of uh, right-wing killings and attacks or uh, uh, killings that were later at, uh, uh, tied in one way or another to the right wing, plus the bombs uh, uh, that were sent out. And that has proved fatal or nearly fatal for one of the Twitter alternatives called Gab. Uh, 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 not that the U.S. government shut them down. Uh, they said they were going to continue to uh, make their services available uh, without censorship uh, as long as there were no uh, threats of violence. Uh, but the uh, people who provide their infrastructure, such as their uh, domain name service, uh, said, I'm sorry, uh, one of the attackers, and the guy who, who shot up the synagogue, uh, uh, posted uh, anti-Semitic stuff on Gab, and therefore um, we're not going to serve Gab. Uh, and there's also a lot of talk about whether maybe uh, Section 230 ought to be revised uh, to say uh, there are certain things you can't tolerate, even if you're uh, insisting that you're not a publisher. Um, Matthew, uh, where does this take us? Um, well, I think it's a useful reminder of what a lot of lawyers learned in law school, which is bad facts often make bad law. And I'm afraid that bad facts, if uh, the legislators are really fixed on this, could lead to some bad legislation. I don't think uh, changing Section 230, which essentially gives things like Twitter and Google a pass on what gets posted on a platform. They can't be held liable if uh, I post something that's anti-Semitic or you know hate speech of some kind. I, I don't think changing that uh, fixes anything. I think we get a lot of benefit from these platforms, um, far more benefit than harm. And so I think we have to kind of live with it. I also would point to what you just pointed to, Stuart, which is the market acted. Private market actors took a decision about Gab, which was this real rancid place for some really just nasty uh, opinion. Um, and it essentially is crippling it. And I'm quite happy to let the private market order itself in this fashion. So I would I would really encourage our legislators to continue to speak out about the speech, but we don't need to try and you know talk about what kind of speech is okay for purposes of uh, the Communications Decency Act. So rather than having the government impose lefty uh, censorship, uh, we should let the lefties of Silicon Valley impose their own form of censorship. I, I would say let the market do what the market does. And, uh, you know, if everyone's sick of lefty censorship, the market should give an opening for some rightist censorship. OK, well, maybe so. Um, here's a, a, a perennial issue that mm. comes up, uh, which is whether uh, the police can force you to uh, provide the passcode to your phone. Um, a, and... Um, there is a doctrine called the foregone conclusion doctrine that says uh, uh, when uh, when you're just providing information that the government was already bound to, to uh, uh, obtain, um, uh, you're not um, being asked to incriminate yourself. 
uh, and therefore the Fifth Amendment uh, does not protect you from being required to cough up your passcode. Uh, um, appeals court in Florida says, yeah, that didn't apply here. Can you make sense of the doctrine and this decision? Well, I can't make sense of the decision. I, I thought I understood the doctrine, and if you read that decision, it's it, it strikes me that the the judges were not well immersed in this area of law. And so I, I struggle to understand how, you know, in this circumstance, it involves some youths that were involved in a drunk driving incident, which wound up killing some of the passengers. And one of the, I think one of the passengers had an iPhone and she clearly had an iPhone. It was a password enabled device. She has the password. She knows the password. There's no doubt about uh, whether the password is there and she knows it. So I would think the foregone conclusion exception would have allowed for uh, the police to ask her to input the password and then do their search with whatever files or communications yeah. they were looking for. So I, I think the court got it wrong. I'm hopeful that it gets to the Supreme Court in uh, Florida so it can be corrected. I know there's another case that was uh, bouncing around the Supreme Court, I believe in Massachusetts, that was also looking at this issue. Um, you know, as, as I know, know, Nick Weaver agrees, I think Oren Kerr's got it right in this area in terms of, you know, the police have to show clear and compelling evidence that someone knows the password and has a password, and that should give them the green light they need. Because coughing up the password at, at bottom only testifies to the fact that it's your phone. Right. And, and if they already know it's your phone and right. they've proved it, then it ought to be a foregone conclusion, and coughing up the password doesn't testify to anything. It just opens the door to collecting uh, uh, information that the government is entitled to. Yeah. And if you want to be hyper careful about this, you could even come up with a scenario in which the police aren't allowed to know the password, but they have to watch you open it for them. And, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and that way you're not even giving away that your password is, you know, whatever it is, your birth date and your spouse's birth date or, you know, however it is you uh, create passwords. So I think the I think the court got it wrong, and I'm hopeful that it gets to the Supreme Court in Florida so they hopefully fix it. All right. Um, well, I, uh, you know, I have taken a, a certain amount of abuse for uh, all of those Internet-enabled uh, uh, vibrator stories that uh, I uh, talked about and the privacy implications of uh, uh, Internet-enabled vibrators. So I think gender equity requires that I uh, point out that uh, – uh, guys use sex toys too, and they are also uh, tech-enabled. And what I thought was most interesting about this story, apart from the fact that you can raise $50,000 on Indiegogo just by saying you're going to build a better uh, uh, device, uh, uh, is that um, uh, the device now is going to feature um, artificial intelligence, Uh and the story here uh, says that uh, uh, a, uh, an AI firm studied 108 hours of pornography and uh, their conclusion, uh, which is now being incorporated into uh, uh, the technology, is we use quantization techniques to discover 16 distinct motions. And using these motions, we design and evaluate a system that procedurally generates Realistic movement sequences using deep learning. We quantitatively show that this system is superior to simple Markov chain techniques. 
I think what they're saying is that um, we can give you a more realistic uh, blowjob uh, with artificial intelligence. One more thing where it appears that uh, science is uh, posing the risk of uh, making human uh, labor uh, unnecessary. Um, I got to ask, Nick, what is a Markov chain technique? Markov chains are a probabilistic model where you say, I'm at state X. Um, I'm going to then go to Y with some probability, Z with some probability. These are commonly used for Twitter bots. And for example, um, it would be very easy to make a Markov chain whose tweets sound very much like President Trump's. You just basically take a huge amount of data, you build up this fairly simple model, and you basically start spouting words like MAGA in all caps. Well, I, I, if, if, if there is anything that I could imagine that would spoil the m- mood worse than uh, having uh, uh, lines from uh, President uh, Trump's tweets uh, uh, tweeted at me or spoken to me in the course of this, uh, I can't imagine any. But uh, you will want to keep the, that definition handy because if you're ever asked uh, during confirmation hearings to explain Markov chain uh, uh, to a senator, uh, it will be important to point out that it has uh, no necessary sexual uh, connotation. All right, last story, uh, just about. Uh, I do want to ask everybody about uh, election security, but um, we've got, uh, we're not going to be able to continue to cover every indictment of Chinese spies that comes down the pike. Uh, We had uh, two or three uh, just in the last week or so. David, uh, um, it looks as though this is a a kind of um, coordinated indictment plus Commerce Department sanctions case. At least one of them is. uh, And uh, that struck me as relatively new. Yeah. you don't have to be um, a Trump follower. Uh, you could even be part of the deep state and believe that uh, China is really flooding the zone uh, when it comes to uh, economic espionage and related forms of information gathering and trade secret theft and the like. And so they're doing a lot. And it does look like DOJ and some of its uh, other governmental partners are trying to do a lot in response. So we have charges here around stealing chip technology from Micron and aerospace technology around a turbofan engine of some significance and efforts to recruit uh, employees and engineers by the Chinese. Uh, You've got civil cases being brought. You've got criminal cases being brought. It does look like a stepped-up, multi-pronged effort to combat this, and the Attorney General even announced with some modest fanfare, uh, flanked by John Demers, the head of the National Security Division, and Brian Benchkowski, the head of the Criminal Division, a new China initiative in DOJ, which just looks like some real focused attention uh, on the issue. So, so there's a lot of activity by the Chinese. There's a lot of activity in response by the U.S. government. Uh, and they do seem to be um, pushing a little bit on the creative front in terms of using combined civil and criminal authorities in concert. Yeah, I, this is this is unstoppable at this point. This is the, this is going to work its way through the uh, the U.S. government and probably the Chinese government and the body politic for years. Doesn't matter 
who's elected in 2020, we're going to see this continue for, for quite a while. That was one observation. The other, you know, um, I'm familiar with the company, the Taiwanese company, and it's not just some Taiwanese uh, uh, packager. This is the biggest chip manufacturer in the world, uh, UMC. Uh, uh, they're not famous because they usually get designs from somebody else and just they're, what they're good at is manufacturing the chips. They don't try to design them in many cases. Uh, uh, but to kind of have the world's largest chip manufacturer become the uh, sort of uh, a, uh, uh, a bycatch for a cybersecurity prosecution uh, is pretty remarkable and I think suggests that um, – there's a kind of choosing sides element to this that you have to pick a side in what's increasingly looking like a serious economic and uh, military cold war uh, with China. All right. Last question for each of you. Is the 2018 election going to be disrupted by foreign uh, uh, hacking cyber operations? Uh, uh, David, I'll give you the first shot. So obviously, whatever propaganda efforts are uh, have been done, they're more or less done since folks are voting tomorrow. Um, we'll look back, I suppose, forensically and figure out how many tweets and Facebook accounts and other you know platforms were fake and Russian inspired or otherwise inspired. Um, as to whether they're going to sort of trigger a power outage or blackout or actually really hack or dox uh, election rolls, I guess I would guess no. Uh, they probably, if they can do that, keeping their powder dry for the next presidential. But, um, of course, the whole idea of that kind of an attack, as opposed to a propaganda attack, is you, you wouldn't see it coming. So uh, can't be sure. I do think this is a big priority for the intelligence community, despite what I perceive as a pretty stark lack of presidential leadership. I do think the IC is trying to focus on this uh, and doing what they can to prevent it and deter it. So we, uh, Nick, I'll let you answer that question and also say um, there was a story that we haven't covered and maybe we should just touch on briefly. The Pentagon actually has a whole plan of attack uh, and has forward placed some of its capabilities. We don't know exactly what that means, but it appears that they're um, pretty proactively prepared to uh, respond if the Russians do do something dramatic. Uh, uh, do you think the Russians are going to do something? And do you think this new cyber command uh, posture is going to make a difference? I don't think the Russians will do anything right now, because what do they need? They sit back, relax, and enjoy a Democratic House versus a Republican president and all the uh, Charlie Foxtrot that it entails. That they don't need to do things like voter deregistration attacks to have the president call the election illegitimate and further spur things, because you know he's going to. Um, so I think they're just not going to bother. As for forward deploy, that means hone the Russian power grid now so we can do a blackout later. Cool. Well, that's that. If, if they screw with our election, uh, they've got it coming. Matthew. No. I don't okay. think anything's going to happen. All right. I, I think uh, I agree. I uh, I think this is uh, it was probably never as big a threat as uh, it was portrayed as. And uh, uh, it has 
induced us to get ready to uh, uh, hit them if they hit us, and uh, uh, the the juice is not worth the squeeze at this point. Uh, okay. Um, this week, we're going to have a panel uh, discussion I did with uh, uh, at Homeland Security Week with uh, Steve Rice, who's the deputy CIO for DHS, and Max Everett, the CIO for the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, so without further ado, let's go to our panelists. Um, so this is a great panel. Uh, uh, we're going to have a good conversation. Uh, uh, to my immediate right, Max Everett uh, is Department of Energy's uh, CIO. He's got a long history in government IT, uh, including some time as a uh, plank holder at DHS, uh, uh, helping get uh, DHS off the ground. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, to his right is Steve Rice, who's the deputy CIO today at DHS, uh, uh, also a long history in federal IT. Um, uh, he uh, worked at uh, TSA as deputy and then CIO uh, before that uh, uh, at the Secret Service. Uh, so again, a long history of involvement in federal IT. And I want to start uh, them off uh, and ask them essentially as CIOs, deputy CIOs, how much responsibility, well, I'll start with Max, do you have for the security of this, the DOE systems? Uh, well, so for ours, it's certainly a DOE. Our model is uh, I'm the, the special, uh, the, the senior agency official for risk, uh, risk management, uh, primarily focused obviously on cyber. Uh, so I, I do have that ownership. Um, I've got a CISO, and of course, I've got a, a, a pretty good team, not only at headquarters, but out at our sites and labs who help with cyber. Uh, but the, the reality for anybody in those sort of leaderships is, is your head on the chopping block. Yep. Um, so I, I'm the one that typically gets called up to Congress to have those conversations and, and talk to the secretary and deputy secretary when those things are going on. So sort of certainly at our agency that we've embraced the model of, of sort of having that single belly button to own that. Um, and then a team below me who does the work across really across the entire department. So how much responsibility do you have for uh, components of DOE? So we're a little unique. We like the, uh, probably more unique than uh, people would like it at Department of Energy. So if you're not familiar with our model, we have all, we have the 17 national labs under us. Many of you have heard of many of them, uh, Oak Ridge, Sandia, uh, Los Alamos, and other science labs as well. And so those are all commercially operated. Um, so it is a bit of a unique piece in federal government. Um, they're, they're a little more integrated with us than contractors, but they're not f- directly federal. Um, so it adds, frankly, some unique challenges for us. Uh, we've also got our environmental management, which is, a, I think, a $6 billion part of the department that's managing the cleanup of our legacy Cold War sites. Um, again, those are almost entirely run by contractors. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a unique challenge there. Uh, what I will say that with the department right now and the secretary's direction is that we're a single department. So he looks at the department as, as a unity, and we have a single mission there. And so as we look at those, and certainly cybersecurity of what is one of his priorities. And so I would say it probably looks a bit different than it has historically the department um, in terms of doing that. So we're working through some of those things right now to help people understand that uh, while we have a distributed federated model, there are going to be certain things, a few I think we're going to talk about, that we're going to address as a department. So... Uh- Steve, the same is true of DHS. It's very it decentralized uh, because it was uh, 
uh, pulled together with a bunch of different components uh, uh, stuck under a single uh, uh, DHS management. I would use the word federated. <laughs> federated. It was federated. Yes, of course it was. Uh, <laughs> uh, so how do you make that work uh, as somebody who has CIO responsibilities mm-hmm. for the whole department? So I've got uh, CIOs at the department as well as at each of the operating components. Each of the operating components really look at the execution of the direct mission, that mission uh CBPI, Secret Service, and the like. Uh, where we come together is where we have um, uh, commonality, mm-hmm. commonality of architectures, commonality of licensing agreements, commonality of legacy infrastructure to ensure that we understand that architecture. Um, uh, Department CIO under FATARA has uh, governance of all the IT investments across each of the uh, components. And when we see like-minded investments, we ensure that we collaborate across the CIO council. And if those areas happen to be within uh, IT security, we bring the um, CISO Council together, ensuring that we understand what is today's challenges within a federated model, as well as what are those things that we can collaborate to make things either simplify the architecture or ensure that we have a better risk posture. So the, um, the Department of Homeland Security has started issuing binding operational directives. It said, get, get Kaspersky out of your system, mm-hmm. deploy DMARC. Uh, um, let me ask Max, uh, since he's not responsible for them, how's that working? How do, how do, how, how do you think the BODs are actually functioning? Well, I, look, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of, of the BODs um, for a few reasons. One is I think there are some things we should be doing as, as a federal government. Um, you know, Second for me is because they are, in fact, binding, they're legally binding, um, they do apply even to my, my contract labs. Right. right. If they have federal infrastructure there, um, as they often do, that applies there as well. So those are things that we, we have applied. You know, when you look at Kaspersky, when you look at, uh, you know, Bot 1801, which, you know, DMARC and those things, we have applied those across the entire department. And so I think that's important. And it, it's that real, for me, it's, you know, when I look at, again, we're, I would go, we're beyond federated, we're confederated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I take the step back, there are things like that that apply across the entire department. Um, that help us have a little bit of unity of effort. And there are things that any particular lab or smaller program, they might not say that's particularly important, but looked at at a departmental and federal level, we have a level of stewardship that goes beyond any of our sort of day-to-day mission requirements. And I think the BODs are are made to reflect those. So DHS, I assume, has fully implemented. Absolutely. Um, You know, when I take a step back, I mean, if you think about it, it really harmonizes risk. So you can look at it from a department perspective or a full USG perspective. It allows an understanding uh, of what are the risk objectives for an organization, and uh, a binding operational directive allows you to kind of prioritize work. So the, the, the problem I see with the bots is they are very kind of uh, single-focus demands, right? You shall do DMARC. Now, that is not a complete security solution. No. It's just a, a, a spot solution. Mm-hmm. And even more so, get Kaspersky out of our systems. Um, a, is there a way in which the BODs can, can migrate to something that's a little more uh, systematic? I think you'll see, uh, as this process matures, I think you'll see a, a change in thought of how to make sure that you can harmonize these and make sure that you have a, uh, a, maybe a, a well-orchestrated outcome that these bots will take us into that direction. So uh, thinking about security of federal systems, I, what, what differences do you see between the security measures and approaches and needs in the private sector and the sorts of things that you have to do? 
do for federal agency? As I know, I'm, I'm going to assume that 90% of it is the same. But w- where's the 10%? i got to be honest. We, one of the most enjoyable conversations I ever have is with the CIOs of private sector. And uh, well, the world is not that much different. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is I like to, uh, I like to understand how are they delivering services, how are they looking at risk, how are they understanding uh, where they make trade-off decisions. I consider the organization at DHS highly regulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that is for MPPD across the federal CIO council, whether that's with my leadership. And uh, where we look at this is um, articulating how a federated operating model is different in a lot of degrees than private sector. Where um, You think the private sector is less federated? Generally? It is less federated to a greater degree than I think the Department of Homeland Security. So where our, our, we diverge a little bit is the responsibility of the department uh, CIO to ensure that they have collaboration across each of the components. And what I have seen is within DHS at the department level, it's, it's the width of the mission. If you're a com- operating com- uh, CIO at CBP, ICE, TSA, or like, your day is driven by that execution of that mission. DHS, it's the width of the mission. Mm-hmm. Every 30 minutes, you could be in a different meeting, whether it's immigration enforcement, uh, cybersecurity, finance acquisitions. And that's what um, it really changes the uh, risk aperture between a component CIO, private sector CIO, and a department-level CIO is understanding and appreciating that level of risk. So, Max, uh, you also have the federated uh, approach. Let me ask this. Uh, I agree the private sector tends to be much more uh, single office uh, responsible for providing everything. Is it possible that that's really the right solution and that government, because of the way government works and the responsibilities to particular stakeholders, has saddled itself with systems that will always be federated and therefore much harder to secure? Well, I think I think if you step all the way up, even to the National Cybersecurity Strategy, you see there's, there's, if you've read through that, you'll see there's an effort to start looking at, going back to what you said, start to take things like the BOD, make them more strategic and more systemic across federal government. So I think people, in fact, have recognized that. You know, I got to spend some time in private sector, and as I look at Department of Energy, there is really no comparable, you know, we're about $30 billion entity, and, you know, we'd be in the Fortune 100. There is no real comparable entity, even if you look at large conglomerates, there, there are no even large conglomerates that are both, yeah. as, as you said, highly regulated, but also have that, that breadth. I like the way you put that, that breadth of mission. You know, any private sector company that had our breadth of mission would have spun off the different pieces, you know, many years ago. You know, and I've worked, I did some- Yeah, work and you would have gotten equity. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, that would have been better. But, but you know, I worked with private sector companies, and they may have lines of business, right? I think the big advantage I've seen if you're out in private sector is two things. One, of course, is- You've got that ultra, ultimate metric of money. You can mm-hmm. you can look at, you know, profit loss. Um, the second thing, of course, is I believe because of the way most companies do their finances, they can actually do life cycle planning for their delivery of mission mm-hmm. systems in a way that we, you know, we're subject to the way that the federal government budget works. Right. And you saw, even if you look at, for example, the Technology Modernization Fund and the MGT Act, a lot of people focused on the money out of that. But the other half of that, I think, is actually more important. And the, the purpose of it is the idea of doing a working capital fund that, that reports to the CIO. Mm-hmm. And the point of that is not to build little kingdoms for CIOs. The point of that is to actually build a mechanism where we can do life cycle planning, mm-hmm. right? Because mo- I joke, but it's unfortunately a true joke. Most of us in government, we build a system. We wait three or four years. 
we realize the system is now, it's now out of date and needs to be updated. And only then do we actually go look for the capital that we need to do the update. But then we get stuck in a CR for a year or two. Uh -huh. So now we're throwing money back on a legacy system that's not delivering mission capability. Mm -hmm. And it takes us another two years to get the actual capital, to get a budget, to get the capital to do the upgrade. So, somebody just gave me a bumper sticker that says, building the legacy systems of tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so let me ask about uh, um, the move to the cloud, because that addresses in, in, in a lot of ways the capital uh, uh, problem. You're, not, you're now renting space, and you don't have to go out and buy machines. Uh, uh, it, it's odd that MGT came along just as we started to have less need for these big boluses of uh, capital investment. Uh, uh, do you see the move to the cloud as an opportunity for security or an opportunity for insecurity? Well, I, I've always looked at the cloud. I, I'm, I'm very much a proponent of it. Um, I, I think the important thing about cloud is it's not more or less risk. It's different risk. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. And so uh, to say that it's more or less secure is a misunderstanding of security. It's, a, you know, there are different things that you have to take better ownership of. You know, really, it's really, for me, I think, around change management uh, and access controls. To the degree you're doing those well, if you're not doing those well in your internal environment, you're going to be just as compromised in different ways. It's probably a little more public in the cloud, but those are things you have to do well. And if you're doing those well, you know, the cloud, and again, I think the other thing that I've tried to work with our folks at the department to step back on is we talk about cybersecurity as this discrete risk. It's a part of broader risk, right? There's mission risk, there's financial risk, there's all these other risks that are a part of that. If my folks can't do their job, if they can't perform mission, that's a risk because I know what they'll do. The same thing they do in private sector, They'll go get their own credit card and they'll go buy cloud on their own. They'll go buy something on their own. They'll use their own budget authority mm -hmm. to go get something mm -hmm. on their own, slip it by us, you know, where we mm -hmm. don't get it in Fatara. And and to be fair, I don't blame them. They're not they're not trying to undermine us. They're trying to get their mission done. Mm -hmm. They're doing what they're incentivized to do. And so to the degree that we're not keeping up with them, they're doing what I would try and do if I was in their place. And so we're trying to move ahead and do that in a, and, and our labs, frankly, have moved far ahead of us as a department on getting to the cloud and taking advantage of it. We're trying to catch up now on some of our federal systems. That was some of our work with the, the TMF fund and other things to try and get out more quickly to the cloud. And then, and this goes back to something you said, which is then get a bit of a more holistic view of how we look at risk and risk management across the department. And mm -hmm. so my, my job as CIO is to, is to set a bit, a bit of a platform and a standard I have some labs that should be taking more risk because they do. And then, of course, I have, for example, our nuclear labs who should take much, much less risk. Right. But if we set a bit of a baseline, we can have those apples to apples discussions. Steve, how do you how do you work with the components on the cloud? Are there are there components at DHS that have started to make that move in a significant way? I'll tell you the cloud is forcing a lot of conversations at the Department of Homeland Security. Right. One is, uh, you know, depending where you sit, some people think there's only one cloud. So there's a, there's a level of conversation about what is the cloud, what is that architecture, what does that mean? When we start talking about cloud, it really forces you to start thinking about your transport layer. Because right. if you look at it, we have, we have large mission executions that are in very austere conditions. So the in insurance of how do you transport data wherever those cloud uh, uh, compute centers are going to be, you know, how do you ensure you got the latency, you're, you're identifying that and treating that accordingly. Uh, additionally, um, not everything the Department of Homeland Security has is going to the cloud. So understanding you know, the rationalization of applications, what's going, 
Where do your investments, where do you start building momentum? What are the easiest things to move first? What are those things you'd have to look at uh, some level of investment? And, uh, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit before, but uh, it's, it's much like moving your home. And, you know, when I, when I bring this up and everybody starts nodding at me strangely, it's when you move, you're going to go through what you're going to take to the new home. You're going to get rid of those things that are duplicative, those things you no longer want, and you're going to make sure that you kind of scale down a bit. That's rationalization. Right. Number two, uh, what are you going to take to the new home? You're going to put it in a new box. You're going to label that box. You understand your inventory of what you take. So what it allows us to understand is when we move to that new environment, whether it's an Azure or AWS type environment, we understand what our application architecture and application inventory looks like. And then it forces a common discussion about what is the underlying necessity to have that workload in that environment. Because at the end, it allows us to start talking about analytics. And if you're going to start putting these workloads, we might want to make an understanding of how do you want to analyze that data in the future. So one of the things about the cloud and, and moving is it's a lot easier than you might like it to be to leave a box of your most valuable stuff out on the curb. Um, and so how do you how do you deal with the new ways to screw up in the cloud? Well, there's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is making sure that you don't take into account the, the training of your workforce. And that's whether your contract staff or your federal staff, because at the end of the day, for those that are long-time feds, they may not have as much experience. So you're going to have to retool your workforce to a greater extent. You have to start understanding succession planning. As people start moving out and attriting out of the organization through retirement and the like, you make sure that these new skill sets are coming in. There's a, a dialogue and engagement with the chief human capital officer to make sure you understand succession planning. And that succession planning is not based on age of the workforce, but new skills and talents that need to come in as you start looking at new uh, uh, technologies. And then finally, there needs to be an, an understanding of the width. Because when you start talking major cloud environments, you start talking about different instantiations. And then you start talking about infrastructure and SaaS and PaaS and where you're going to go. It can get very wide. And one of the challenges is making sure that your training portion is understanding how are you training your workforce to work with the monitoring tools to make sure that you can work and manage those workloads. Because if you do get too wide, if you don't take that in consideration, you start making mistakes. And what I find is the mistakes are the most difficult to, uh, to identify because you really didn't know that you made this mistake in the first place. Right. And mm -hmm. it, can, it could go on for until yep. somebody for embarrasses you with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Max, you're, you said a couple of times that you're in a highly regulated environment, and, and I think that does make sense. Not only are you subject to a variety of regulations and passing regulations on to the labs, but um, DOE is responsible for regulation of cybersecurity in energy and nuclear uh, facilities uh, that are among the top targets. Um, how do you how, first? How do you work with? the people who are responsible for regulating cybersecurity there, um, and what are the adversaries you worry about the most? Sure. So the way we work with them is we do, again, I, and I will, I will say, my folks will be happy to say that DOE is, we ourselves are not the regulatory entity. Uh, which is great for us because it allows us to have a little more open conversation. Uh, we work very closely with NERC and FERC, who are the regulatory entities. Uh -huh. um, you know, again, we have very close relationships with them across a number of sort of layers in our department. Um, so our role, this is one of the Secretary Perry's priorities. Uh, it was enough of a priority. He created a new office called CSER, and it's basically taking some of our existing work on cybersecurity research in the sector, um, our emergency response function. You know, we just have one for a hurricane. 
putting those all into one place where there was sort of a single belly button. We've got a new assistant secretary there. Um, and so I work closely with her and then our assistant secretary on resilience as we sort of put together how we work with the sector. We actually, we have the, the electric sector <laughs> coordinating council. We just briefed them the other week at our headquarters. We work closely with the ISAC. So Again, very similar to what, you know, we do that as a sector-specific agency, but we do it in coordination with DHS, which does it across, you know, any number of these sectors. And so it's much like what they do. It's, it's building relationships. I think one of the very unique things most people don't know about DOE is we have entities called the Power Marketing Administrations. Um, those are, they're, they're pretty old. They're 50, 60 years old in some cases. They essentially exist to resell power from federal hydro. So think Hoover Dam, especially up in the northwest, uh, the, the dams of mm -hmm. the Columbia River. So they actually provide electricity through as a reseller to probably over, I think it's over 30 million Americans. Um, and they're actually a big part of stabilizing the grid up in the, north, uh, in the northwest. So the value for us is that gives us a really unique insight into as we work with our regulated friends in the private sector and the, in the electric industry and energy it gives us a bit of a unique understanding of that because we have a regulated entity, right? They're both regulated by me in a sense mm -hmm. through FISMA and things like that, but they also are, are, they still report through FERC and NERC and all the requirements they have as well. So it's given us a bit of a unique perspective on that as we then go out, you know, then we don't just sort of throw things out to the sector. They know we actually understand a little of it. So I'll ask Steve to, to join us in that the, the thing that, is always the biggest problem when you're trying to regulate cybersecurity is you you get compliance, not security. And people say, yeah, I've got to check these boxes. Uh, I don't know whether it makes me more secure, but I know I have to clear, check the boxes. Uh, uh, and then I'll worry about cybersecurity later uh, or never. Uh, how do you overcome that spirit? Well, looking across just the, the internal to the department is understanding you know, the, the, the changing in philosophy of, of how you understand risk, how you understand risk at a lot of different levels, the, the financial risk of making sure that you understand how to take uh, legacy debt out of um, um, aging infrastructure, mm -hmm. looking at uh, the risk associated with the contract strategies to make sure how are you staying abreast or how are you keeping those vendors uh, to bring the state current on their patch management, making sure that they're, uh, they bring highly skilled talent to manage your workloads. And then finally, looking at uh, just the research and development, make sure how are you staying abreast of the technical roadmaps of some of your key providers. Right. And so understanding you know, the, the ecosystem in which we are in, you know, we're a big Microsoft shop and a big Oracle shop and a big IBM shop and an Adobe shop. How do I understand where they're making investments of where my, where I'm going to follow those roadmaps? How do I influence those roadmaps and make sure they understand how they're taking my best, uh, uh, my mission responsibilities into account? And then also have been, um, enough of a dialogue to say when you're going to move off of those roadmaps. Because, you know, some of the investment strategies just don't make sense for the departments in all cases. So thinking about um, ways to build a, a more security-focused rather than compliance-focused uh, uh, solution. One of the ideas that is getting quite popular in the private sector and to some degree in the uh, government sphere as well is bug bounties. Mm -hmm. um, what's your thinking, I'll start with Max, on bug bounties for DOE? So we are, we are actually looking at that. Uh, we're, we should be, you know, my hope is in a few months we're going to be ready to roll something out. Um, we're trying to do it in a very focused manner, right? Sort of, but I would say the good news is I've, as I've talked to folks, you know, I know some folks at DOD, other agencies who've, who've had some good success with this because 
starting with a very focused area, pick, you know, don't just sort of do everything, pick some focused areas. People, I think, have built some very good frameworks around how to do and manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does give you the reality is there, there are a lot of sort of the, I'll use hacker in its original yeah. non-pejorative sense, right? Mm-hmm. Which is people who simply like technology for technology, uh, some of them out, happen to also care about their country. Um, and so the idea of enlisting their help to try and secure things, I, I you know, I think we've already seen some successes in mm-hmm. government. We're looking to pick that up as well uh, because I, I think there's some value there. And again, if you if you do it in a focused and targeted way, mm-hmm. I think it can absolutely bring value. Absolutely. Steve? If you kind of look at the bug bounty, it's almost like a federated uh, pen testing strategy. Yes, it is. So the is, is Cheaper how, do you bring, yeah, well, how do you bring people in here to tell you information you don't know about your systems? Right. Um, uh, like DOE, we're exploring it as well. Understanding how we get best practices, looking at a lot of models over at DOD, uh, and then say, how do we manage this? Um, but, you know, if you think it's, it's the right strategy so you can identify risk uh, to a greater degree than we presently have today. So to make that work, you usually have to have already a vulnerability disclosure yeah. program so that when people tell you that I found a vulnerability, there's somebody who says, okay, my job is to figure out whether this is true and to figure out how to fix it and to respond to the person who disclosed it. Um, because if you don't have that, then there's no point starting with the bug yeah. yeah. Uh, and are you implementing that first? Is that your your, your plan? Uh, are individual components going to implement that? No, it won't be an individual component. It'll be from a department perspective. Okay. But, we, but what we're going to do, you don't want to rush into it. So you understand is where can you where can you have some level of exposure where you can allow people to start providing that information? Right. How do you properly resource to make sure that you're communicating as well as whatever whatever vulnerabilities identified that you can remediate them in a timely fashion? And then three is learn from those lessons. So how do you want to expand over time? So you have a you know a recurring uh, expanding program. So Max, the thing that would make me most nervous if I was sitting in your shows thinking about bug bounties is uh, IoT industrial control systems uh, running power plants. They never shut down. They can't shut down. That's a disaster if they shut down for five minutes. Um, and so um, saying, sure, why don't you try? Hacking this and telling me what you find is uh, a moment uh, of considerable fear. Uh, uh, is there anybody who's doing that uh, successfully now? I don't. I don't think there's anybody doing. Uh, you know, if you have that much exposure to your IoT systems, I think most people, you probably got a bigger problem to start with. Um, so, and, I, and having worked in some of the control systems areas, the reality is that those systems just. The vast majority of people who are doing these things, they're used to doing IT systems. And, and uh, for folks who've done, you know, the pen testing and those kind of things in an OT environment, right, that, that broader environment that's different, right, mo- what's the first thing you learn in IT when there's a problem? Did you reboot your computer? That's literally the absolute, there has to be something on fire answer when you're in an OT environment. It's completely different. And so mm-hmm. this is a little of that training element mm-hmm. of, and we're going through that right now, again, because we have OT not only in those power marketing administrations, but almost every in every organization now on physical security and other areas is starting to integrate some type of operational technology. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't know that it, we've, in, we've integrated it. Somebody has integrated it into us without our knowledge. And so that's a training element we're having to start do across everybody who does sort of cybersecurity response is to understand the difference there that, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, I'll unplug it and see what happens. That, that's usually never a good thing on operational type of technology. So we're, we're taking, yeah, we'll, that wouldn't probably be a good ways out for, I think, anybody who's 
who's working in those kind of areas. Sounds right. Yeah. Okay, Max, Steve, thank you very thank much. You. Thank, you, thank you. I uh, promised everybody that I would um, try to spur more reviews of our uh, uh, podcast uh, and that I would read some of the more entertainingly abusive. Uh, um, so here's one from Nick of Steel, uh, who reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, um, Stuart Baker is less funny than he thinks. Well, that would not be hard. Uh, and substitutes snide political asides for analysis. Uh, I guess he's playing to Steptoe and Johnson's client base. As a podcast, however, it would be greatly improved by a humbler uh, inquisitive host. Uh, so I, that's not bad, but you know, it's not that funny. Uh, 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 so I'm hoping... Was uh, Nick Weaver submitting that? Or Nick <laughs> it must be, yes. You know, it is. He does spell it the same way. So uh, uh, maybe what, he, what he's suggesting is that he could be the humbler, more inquisitive host. Oh, hell no. I'm not humble. <laughs> Well, that is the problem. Anybody who's willing to do this probably isn't humble enough for uh, for Nick of Steel. Uh, uh, okay, um, a, uh, please do send in reviews uh, if you think you can beat that. Beat that. Uh, I'll take almost any abuse for a five star review, uh, and um, uh, and I will read it on the air. If you think that was unfair, uh, and you think that I am as funny as I think I am, uh, please uh, submit a review to uh, Apple so that uh, others can uh, can read both sides. Uh, uh, send us uh, your thoughts for additional guests to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, uh, and we'll send you a, a, a mug. Join me on uh, at Stuart Baker on Twitter, and you can see a little advanced peek of what stories we're thinking about using for the week. Uh, we've got a bunch of good uh, guests coming up. I, I did a deep dive with an ABA panel of luminaries on um, CFIUS. Uh, we'll be uh, turning that into an interview. Uh, uh, Mika Yoyang of this third way is going to talk about uh, some pretty interesting cyber enforcement ideas that. Uh, uh, her institution has come up with, and uh, uh, Representative Jim Langevin, uh, uh, the most well-informed uh, uh, Democrat in the House on cybersecurity matters, uh, will be talking on the cyber work that he has been doing in Congress. And by the time he talks, we'll know whether he's going to be in the majority or not. Uh, uh, finally, show credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett's our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. And I'm Stuart Baker, your host, almost as funny as I think I am. Uh, we hope you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.